Welcome to the American Happiness Project. I'm Michelle Wax, and I travel throughout the USA, interviewing Americans from all walks of life on how they reach happiness and fulfillment in their everyday lives, and most importantly, how you can too. Get ready, get excited, we're about to begin. This next episode is perfect for anyone who's ever felt like your happiness levels are being affected by anxiety, stress, or any other negative emotion. Amy Kamodeka went from having debilitating anxiety to not only overcoming it, but truly living a happy and fulfilled life. Now she helps others do the same through her company, DNA Driven. Amy is from Charlotte, North Carolina. One of my favorite parts of this episode is the strategies and tactics Amy provides about how to start taking control of your happiness and also build confidence in yourself. I'm super excited for you to learn from Amy today. Let's get started. All right, everyone. So we are here with Amy today, and I'm super excited to talk to Amy. We met through the Build Your Life Resume course, and thank you for coming on, Amy. Thank you for having me. Earlier when we were talking, you had mentioned that you had overcome anxiety um, at a point in your life, and I was wondering if you would be able to share kind of what that was like and and the the journey behind it. Absolutely. So... You know, historically, I was always an athlete. I, um, you know, that was kind of my hobby in life. I was always super healthy. And, you know, I kind of felt my life, I, I checked all the boxes, did everything I was supposed to do, you know, you know, went to high school, went to college, got a good job, uh, took good care of myself, waited for the right guy to get married. <laughs> and, you know, on paper, like looked good. I, I I was doing exactly what, you know, I think that we perceive to be walking the right path in life. And, you know, I met a wonderful man, got married at 29. We couldn't wait to have kids. And um, within two months, I was pregnant with my first child. You know, he was over the moon, always wanted kids. And um, at 16 weeks, we lost that baby. It was a baby girl and she had Turner syndrome. So, that was really devastating. And, you know, you kind of hear those stories and, you know, but you never think it's going to be you. And, you know, I, I was in the healthcare field. I understood, you know, percentages. I understand how these things can happen. And I was okay. You know, I, I, I got through that. And then unfortunately, um, we ended up having two more miscarriages after, you know, we lost our first baby girl. And so the doctor wanted to start doing some tests. And for anybody who's gone through infertility, and it just seems to be, you know, I have no problem talking about it. I'm a wide open book. Uh, But you know, you go through so many tests, and, you know, you feel like you're gonna, you know, die from giving blood so much. But, um, you know, so I went through all the tests. And Again, I was in the healthcare field. I treated cancer patients. I worked in the hospital, uh, very scientific by nature. So, you know, I know what's real sometimes and then what's emotionally driven. So, you know, going into that appointment, you know, I knew that there would be some factual things that, you know, we maybe would have to fix. But when I was in the appointment to get my results, (laughs) the nurse um, looked at me and said, have you ever had anyone drop dead in your family between the ages of 30 and 40 of a brain aneurysm or heart attack? Oh my God. And I kind of, yes. (laughs) Not the way all healthcare providers break news to people. And that's what was kind of funny to me because I worked with cancer patients and I'm looking at this woman like, are you you really, you're, this is, what are you going to say next? Wow. 
then went into the fact that I had this genetic marker and a lot of people have the genetic marker. It's, you know, called MTHFR, but a lot of people have um, a heterozygous, which means if you look back at, if, if people remember like DNA sequencing, you have two letters attached in a DNA sequence and I had two of the same letters. So like I had two C's of my DNA sequence together. And that apparently is a really bad combination to have it. It essentially affects your heart. Um, it puts you at risk for, you know, having a heart, heart attack younger in life. It also put me at high risk for um, passing blood clots to my children or to my babies in utero. So that was that first day that I found that out. And fast forward 24 hours the next day when I went to go uh, get some more tests, I met with another nurse and she looked at my, my uh, blood test results. She's like, oh, you have MTHFR homozygous C. And I looked at her and I was like, yeah. And she's like, oh, just not the good one to have. And I was like, oh my wow. gosh. <laughs> so I was literally just kind of frozen. And even though they said they didn't tell me they didn't say in so many words, what I heard when they were telling me not the good one to have, or have you had somebody drop dead in your family? What I heard was you are going to drop dead in the next 10 years. You know, that's how I was interpreting emotionally the information, even though scientifically percentage wise, I knew that that probably wasn't the case, but what ended up happening is it threw me into full blown anxiety. I literally um, just thought every minute of every day, every chest pain I had, every headache I had, I was, I literally was just going to die. And I was 30 at the time. And, you know, I was basically, if I was in the hospital working, I was okay because somehow I rationalized, well, if something happens in the hospital, I'm in the hospital, they can take care of me really quickly. And then if I was home with my husband, I'm like, well, I'm okay here. If something happens, I'm happy and I'm with my husband. <laughs> so I'm okay. But it was in between. It was outside of all of that where literally I would have debilitating anxiety. My hands would go numb. I would hyperventilate. I couldn't make it from the hospital to my house without having an anxiety attack. It was debilitating. So it took a lot of therapy. And, you know, I know some people are pro medication, not medication, but I did have to, you know, go on medication to literally stop you know, obsessing about dying. And it was just, you know, that at that point I was like, do I even have kids? Am I going to have kids and die? So it took literally probably a good two years to overcome through a lot of therapy um, to learn to be present and joyful and know what I had control over and what I didn't have control over. And uh, to, to literally not beat the anxiety, but to be able to manage the anxiety. Wow. So yeah, a lot of work. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like, how did you kind of, um, obviously this was really affecting your life. And so what was kind of, did you know right away? Yes. I want to go to therapy. Cause I feel like a lot of the times people that I talk with, they might not have, you know, as strong anxiety, um, as you are experiencing, but they feel like they can't go or they feel like something's wrong with them. Did that ever cross your mind or what was kind of the process between making that decision. Oh, yeah. I think what happened was, I mean, waking up nightly, um, where I was literally feeling like I was going to have a heart attack. And I started to cue into it being anxiety, you know, that, you know, it wasn't a heart attack that I was having. It was just that I was so anxious. I was having chest pains. But living that day in and day out, you kind of know that you cannot 
live that way. And then looking at your spouse and, and, you know, them feeling there's nothing that they can do to help you. Like my husband was so kind and he's just like, you're going to be fine. It's going to be all right. But you know that you're starting to affect his life. You're starting to affect other pieces of your life. You knew I knew that I had to do something. So what I did actually, it was a little bit unorthodox. Um, and it, and I guess it did kind of tie into going to a therapist, but I was very lucky in the fact that I worked with, uh, a woman who worked with a lot of my patients that had cancer. So even though I didn't have cancer, what I was dealing with in my head was a like end of life diagnosis, even though I didn't have one, but that's how I, my brain was functioning. So she was a logical person to reach out to because she dealt with people who felt like this all the time. So she graciously would allow me to come up to her office during my downtimes in the hospital and she would work with me and give me um, some meditation techniques. And that was kind of hard at first because every time I tried to meditate, I would just kind of fall back into you know, hyperventilating and anxiety attacks, but you know, it, it was, it was practice. It was practice knowing I had control. I had control over this minute, this day, how I was going to react to it. And did I want to waste the day reacting to something that I had absolutely no control of, nor probably was going to happen. Um, you know, so it was, it was a constant practice in working with her and I didn't really feel, so to speak, I was going to therapy, I think, cause I knew her, but there is a time that you have to talk things out to hear yourself talk logically about it. And then you can start to more react to it. It's almost like writing it down on paper. When you write down something on paper, it puts more meaning to it than kind of just thinking it internally and keeping it to yourself. Got it. Got it. And you mentioned the meditation practices. Was there anything else that you were doing um, in in those sessions or just, you know, in your daily life that would, would help you overcome it? Well, in the sessions, a lot of it was realizing that I fell back into the fear of what I experienced in my childhood. And I had gotten into cancer care because honestly, everybody that I knew when I was growing up um, in my neighborhood, we had four adults pass away of cancer. So cancer was like what I knew. And I knew I always wanted to work with cancer patients because I saw so many people pass away of it. I thought that that was normal. When I talked to people, they were like, no, we didn't know, you know, before the age of 15, you know, five people that passed away of cancer, but I did. So what I realized was because that was so real, death was so real to me at a young age, I was literally going back to those moments and pulling from my past what I knew to be true. And I think a lot of us do that, you know, that we always fall back to whatever our, our experiences were and what molded us to be what we think and know as being true when it may not be. So it was really understanding where the source of the anxiety was coming from. It just wasn't from the news. It was from, well, I saw so many people pass away in their 30s of cancer or another disease or something. So yeah, that's definitely going to be my road. And so I had to realize that that was not my reality. It was not my story. Got it. Yeah, I feel like so often things be, that are close to us, they just aren't part of our normal life. So it takes either, you know, writing it down, saying it out loud, talking to someone to kind of bring it to the surface and realize there there could be possibly another way or another way of thinking about Absolutely. it. Absolutely. So once you, you know, you're you're in therapy and you're working through it, you would also mention that you realized that you could take control of your happiness and take control, you know, day by day, what kind of did that process look like? Because often I talk with people and they think that an outside, you know, person or circumstance is really affecting their happiness. Um, Can you speak Mm -hmm. to that a little bit more? 
Absolutely. I think at that point in time is kind of really where I made a lot of um, realizations as far as what happiness and joy looked like for me. You know, um, I, I remember back in college, I was in a work study program in the athletic office and there was a sign up there that said, you know, um, eight, 90% of life is what happens to you and 10% is how you react to it. And I always play that over and over, but I think immaturity always reigned over the fact that I would played more of the victim than I did the, the victor in my life. And all of a sudden in that moment, when I was working through all of that, there comes a moment when you realize you are in control of how you deal with things day to day. Um, so I knew that the way I could take control of it was to do everything in my power to fight what the future could look like, right? So it was being more mindful of what I ate, exercising as much as I could, um, putting myself in a healthy, positive environment on a daily basis. All of these things mattered as far as how I controlled my joy and happiness. And that then meant stepping away from the things that did not create joy in my life. And because I was faced with that reality that maybe my life was gonna be a little shorter, I then said, well, then I don't want to waste it in, in the, in the negativity of others. And, you know, and when people aren't going through hard things and life is perfect for them, they tend to complain about things that don't really matter. Or they let things that don't really matter take down their lives. But when you're like, okay, I don't know if I have what time I have left, I'm going to control and make every single day as joyful as possible. And that's in my control, not in anybody else's, um, you can't count on other people to make you happy and you have to push away the people that don't. But when you feel like you have limited time, it's almost like I had permission to then take control and do what was going to truly bring joy to my life. What did that look like? What brings joy to you? So, um, you know, at the time it was really, you know, going after, you know, there was a time I wanted a family so bad, what I went through and gosh, that could take hours to explain. But, you know, there was a time when people looked at me and my mother looked at me like, isn't enough enough? Like, haven't you been through enough? Haven't you been through enough surgeries? Haven't you had enough close calls? You know, when is it, when is it, when are you going to stop? And I had to know that that was for me to decide, not for anybody to tell me. So, you know, happiness and joy is making my own decisions and being okay with that, knowing that Person A and B might not agree with me, but that's okay because at the end of the day, I have to look in the mirror at the end of the day and, and be okay with what I decided and be happy with that. So it really looked like taking control and stopping a, being a people pleaser and stop doing what everybody else thought I should be doing and really taking control of what I wanted. Got it. Got it. I completely agree with you there. Is there anything that you'd recommend to someone who say is listening to this and they, they want to get to that point. They're listening. They're like, yes, Amy, I want to get to that point, but they're just having trouble. Maybe they have a bunch of negative people in their life or someone close to them kind of really keeps harping on something and they're not quite there yet. Like, was there any initial first steps you took um, or like anything you'd recommend for someone who wants to start, you know, kind of just going after what they want and, and living that joyful life? Absolutely. So it, it hasn't been probably like I had, so I had my family, I had three beautiful daughters, everything worked out. Um, but there came a time when I still did not feel 
um, supported in necessarily what I wanted to do. And what I realized is um, we don't wake up, you know, our children wake up and, you know, we're just like, you're going to have a great day. You're going to go to school. You're, you know, we're always like, you know, cheering them on, trying to create happiness for them and joy for them in the day to day. But as adults, when we get out of bed, nobody's saying you're going to go, you know, go after that day. You're going to do great. So you have to really dig and find messages for yourself that is going to bring your, um, bring that joy up through you. So what happened was I really started, and I didn't even know, you know, six, seven years ago, you know, the podcast world or whatnot. So what I, when I find, when I realized that existed, I started literally playing every single positive message I could to myself in the morning before I did anything else before I, I mean, I stopped looking on social media. I stopped the comparison game and I literally started filling my mind with positivity every single morning when I woke up because nobody else was going to do it for me. So I needed to go find it. So essentially, you know, that was one of the first steps I took into trying to fill myself with positivity. Oh, I love that. I do the exact same thing. <laughs> so I'm so glad to hear you do it too. Are there any um, podcasts or positive content that you, that you really enjoy that you'd recommend? Oh gosh, there's a ton. So I started before I knew anything, you know, it's like I was driving one day and I would drive around a lot and I didn't put on the radio anymore. So the first things I started listening to that, the only thing I knew to, to look for was Tony yes. Robbins. Cause that's the only thing I heard about, heard, heard about. So, you know, I started, you know, searching all his stuff, listening as much as I could on YouTube during all my rides, all his messages. And then that kind of just, uh, you know, spiraled down. I listened to a lot of Ed Milet. Um, as you know, through BYLR, I listen to Jesse Itzler. I think that he's incredibly impactful as far as living, you know, a fulfilling life. And, um, so, you know, really I look, um, who is it? Tom by by, by Leo, uh, his, uh, impact yes, theory. Yes. Because, yeah. Because they, they interview a lot of people who have overcome and have that mindset so um, a lot of those, you know, type podcasts are what I listen to. Got it. I love it. I actually just heard Ed Milet speak this past weekend and he was so powerful. His energy is insane. I love it. Oh, were you at uh, yes, the Hollis? Yes, the Rise Business Conference. Yeah, <laughs> it was amazing. Oh, oh you so were? Oh, my God. Wow. Yeah, it was incredible. Honestly, like I was expect, like I knew it was going to be awesome, but it just surpassed my expectation. It was incredible. Right, right. And he really speaks to the fact that we, you know, you have that limited yeah. time. I mean, and Shelton said it, you know, you have that limited time left, you have one life, you have one chance, you decide how you're going to, you know, take on the day to day and whether you surround yourself with negative or positive people are your choice. And that's a hard thing, like the negative people. And, and that's when I started, you know, that was probably the biggest and the hardest step for me is kind of putting a box around the negativity around my life. And sometimes that's your own family. And that's really hard. You know, it's easy when it's a group of people that are doing things that don't serve you, like going to the bars and drinking or, you know, not spending time doing things that are going to propel them to the next level in their life. And you can easily walk away from that. But when it's your own family, that's really hard. And I remember there's times where I literally will zone out in conversations because it starts to bring you so far down that you need to block it out. And, uh, 
I just, you know, I, I do that often when people are just honing on the negativity in life. Yes, yes. Have to have to clear it out. I feel like that's something too that when I'm talking with people, they have difficulty doing doing that. So is that kind of how you approach it? You just if you're in that conversation, you tune out a little bit, or is there any other strategies to kind of remove yourself from the negativity? So what I often try to do is in, in that the beginning, I think I was over overly zealous in the fact that if somebody was speaking negativity, I started pulling out every single piece of positive that that, that situation was, you know, that it presented. So, you know, if, if people were speaking about a negative um, thing they had uh, come across in their life, I would say, well, yeah, but didn't you learn or, you know, what would it look like if you didn't didn't have that experience because you can always pull something positive away from a negative experience if you dig down deep enough. And sometimes it's not immediate. Sometimes it's a little bit down the line, but it everything happens for a reason and propels us in a certain way. So finding that positivity and the negative that happened. So I think I would be overzealous at some times, you know, trying to be really positive and it would annoy people. So I always say, if you want to know that you're, you know, you have negative energy around me, you have to just watch how I, I all of a sudden shut up and retreat. Because if I shut up and retreat in conversations, it's most likely because there's a lot of negativity going on. Gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> I love it. Um, cool. So yeah. So basically, um, what I what I also hear, what I'd love to kind of get your take on, and as you're speaking, it seems like you're a very confident person. And so did this kind of develop over time or have you always been confident? Um, because I think when, you know, trying to get to a place of, you know, taking control of happiness and positivity and building that, um, you do have to build confidence at the same time, especially when so much of the world is kind of pushing back at that. So is, is this something that's been built for you? Have you always been this way? Um, so I would say in my youth, my confidence was really embedded in my athletic ability, but outside of that, I was incredibly insecure. Um, I was insecure around my intelligence that I wasn't smart enough that, you know, uh, you know, how I looked and, you know, but the one thing that I was always confident in was my athletic ability. And I've really hung on to that most of my life. And I kind of joke around now, like if I'm not able to work out or I'm not able to compete in certain things, you know, would that, would I have absolutely zero confidence? Uh, you know, and, but I think what's happened over time. And I think as we get older, um, you know, that you're not good at everything and you start to build confidence around the things that you know, you can do well. And as long as you're humble enough to understand that you're not the best at everything, um, and you can be confident in the things you are good in, you can start to slowly build that. I'm not a hundred percent confident in, you know, in my, in business sometimes, you know, I, I do question a lot, but that's why, again, I either attend conferences or listen to podcasts to, you know, keep me going and know that, you know, if I fall down and I have to get back up, that's part of the process. And I think being around people who have that journey helps you build confidence that you're not the only one necessarily like stumbling and falling and failing. It's whether you're getting back up and trying again. So when you go through that and you stumble and you fall back up and then you make it happen the next time, I think you slowly start to build confidence and then not comparing yourself. So we're just, you know, 
we, we die in comparison. And I think as women and when we're younger, everything is a comparison game. And when we can't, you know, meet the level of the people we're comparing ourselves to, our confidence is crushed. And when the minute we stop doing that, appreciating where other people are at, celebrating them, but not comparing ourselves to them, then we can build our own confidence and know what that looks like for us. Love it. I love it. Um, when you do have, you know, a moment or a day or even a week of like feeling like, like maybe you're not good enough or you have that self doubt, how do you kind of get past it? You said you stand back up, um, after each encounter, but is there anything you're doing, like any specific tactics that someone could use for themselves if they're feeling a little unsure in some area of their life? Absolutely. I think you have to really, and, and sometimes, you know, you're, you, a lot of people may not be there yet, right? They may not have built a circle of people around them to help lift them back up. That has been the number one thing. And it was very, you know, for me to lean on people, I, I used to feel that was a weakness. Um, but that is really being able to connect with people that you can lean on. Now I understand is more of a strength that you know that you can't carry yourself and you admit that you need help when you, you you do. And, you know, the biggest thing for me probably in the last three years is to get around the people I want to be more like, to get around the people I know share that feeling that we're going to lift each other up, not tear each other down. And so I have been able to build a community of people around me that are all right with big audacious dreams, that are, are all right with me um, sharing my visions and they support that. So when I have a super down day, I literally have, you know, 15 people, um, like-minded women that I could call to lift me back up. And that has probably been the biggest change that I have encountered. And when you don't have that, and if you're just starting out, that's where I think the podcasts come in. Like when you're really down and you're like, man, I just don't think I can take another step or I just don't think I can do it. And the self-doubt starts to take you over. That's when, you know, filling yourself with any positive message you could find outside of the people around you um, is so important. But getting around those like-minded people is imperative because you can't go it alone. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I hear that a lot. That's really the most important factor the next kind of follow-up question that I normally get when, you know, someone hears that response is, how do you start doing that? Um, especially if it's someone who's a, maybe a little more ahead of you. Um, how do you start, mm-hmm. like, building those connections and those friendships? Well, I think where we are so blessed in where we live in this day and age is, you know, there are so many resources at our fingertips um, to look in search groups on social media is it's so easy to start. You could move to a town and start to search, you know, weekly groups that meet. Um, and it could be most of the time it's on social media and then start attending anything that you possibly can to start to, to, uh, meet like-minded people. So if you have a small business, you, you, and you move to a new town, you know, attending those small business networking meetings and starting to make connections. But we're in a place right now that 
on Facebook, there are a lot of, especially for well, women and men, but there are a lot of entrepreneur groups, uh, business groups. There's people in healthcare groups. There's lawyer groups. I mean, it doesn't matter what you do. If you're a business owner or you work in another field, there is a place where you can start chatting with like-minded people. And then within those groups, you generally start to find people you connect with. Um, but, you know, going to conferences, but really in your towns, there are often people meeting that you don't even realize are meeting and groups that you can get involved in to start, you know, identifying the people you connect with. So that's how I always recommend starting. I've moved like four times and that's what I do every single time I move. Gotcha. And is that just through like, um, meetup or how do you, how do you find those meetup groups? Yeah. Meetups and, and social media. I mean, when I first moved to North Carolina, where I live now, it's, you know, looking at all the moms groups. And now, granted, I don't belong to a lot of moms groups now, but at least that's where I started. And then trying to find, you know, the like-minded fitness people, the like-minded business people. And then, you know, there you're going to have to go through, you know, a lot of groups till you find yours, but slowly you start to build a tribe around you and the people that you can connect with. And that is really what will help you excel. I, I love believe. it. And has that helped as you've been building DNA driven with having those people surrounding you? Oh gosh. I mean, there are so many, like as, as an entrepreneur, there are so many doubts that I've had. There are times when you just like want to curl up and just say, well, everything I've been trying hasn't worked. And I literally will call somebody in one of my masterminds or a group and we'll meet for coffee or we'll have a zoom call. And by the end of that, I'm like, okay, I can do this. I can do this. So yeah, it's actually, it's been a lifeline for me. And I don't think I would be where I'm at without uh, those people in my corner. That's amazing. That's so amazing. Um, So thank you so much for taking the time. I just have one last question. Um, So the, the company and the podcast is American happiness. And so what we really try to do is Mm -hmm. highlight people from all walks of life, regardless of outside circumstances, how, you know, mindset thought process really drives happiness. So is there anything else you, you want to add for someone that's listening to this and they want to get to that place that you're in? Absolutely. I will admit that I was not the happy, happiest person, you know, when I was a child, I came, you know, my dad was in and out, my parents were off and on. Um, You know, I would Happiness to me was, you know, being able to run to them with something that I accomplished and having them be proud of me. I was always dependent on somebody's, um, you know, somebody being proud of me for me to be happy, so to speak. And I think the problem is, is that a lot of us are always looking for the next thing to happen to make us happy. So, you know, when I get that next job or I buy that car or meet that guy, you know, and, and happiness is that feeling, you know, that you feel when, you know, you're experiencing something, maybe when you accomplish something, you've got to find joy and you've got to look really deep down and say, what is bringing me joy? And then understand that it's nobody else's responsibility to bring you joy in your life. I've seen people who have come from nothing make, you know, their life amazingly something and they're so successful. And I've seen the people who have everything that can make nothing of their lives and they're miserable. But it's all that mindset that you have control every day on how you, you know, tackle every day. And, you know, things are going to go bad and the path isn't going to be easy. But, you know, knowing that you've created enough self-worth 
and yourself to be joyful in what you have and what you've experienced and the opportunity of where you can go. That is, I think, ultimately what some people would call happiness. I refer to joy, you know, and that's what you've got to do. You're, you are you, you are responsible for you. Um, You can't let and give other people the power to create your happiness. You have got to do that yourself. And there's so many ways to do that. But at the end of the day, you have that power. That was an amazing answer. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time. And that's a wrap for today's episode. Make sure to check out our free resources online at www.american-happiness.com. Feel free to follow us on Instagram as well at American Happiness Project. See you soon.